Good morning. Our Bible reading today is taken from Genesis chapter 42, verses 1 to 17. And its title is Joseph's Brothers Go to Egypt. Genesis 42, beginning at verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for there was famine in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. No, he said to them, you have come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, your servants were 12 brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father and one is no more. Joseph said to them, It is just as I told you, you are spies, and this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. If you are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives... You are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. May God give us understanding as Adrian brings the message. Well, you can complain to upper management all you like, <laughs> but upper management is running the computer. And it's a very powerful, powerful position, I have to say. Flicking those early so everyone sings before they have to brings me great joy. If you want it done better, do it yourself. <laughs> All right. I'm not talking to you. You go to Lawson Baptist. <laughs> All right. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for... Your word, we thank you that uh, as we come to it, we come with great confidence. We thank you that you, all scripture is God-breathed. 
and it's useful for correcting, rebuking and training in righteousness. And Father God, I pray now that as we do open your word, it will do just that. I pray that you will help us uh, to be confronted with the realities of what's happening here and perhaps with the circumstances in our own lives and in our church, Lord, and help us to draw into you with faith. And so, Father God, bless us now as we do consider uh, this narrative and just help us to understand it clearly, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, Carl A. Palima is a professor uh, of human development at Cornell University, and he's done lots of studies uh, about families and, uh, and particularly about the estrangement uh, that often ha happens in families. Uh, and he, he uh, conducted a random survey of 1,340 individuals and he found that more than a quarter reported that they themselves were estranged from a close family relative. He defined that as having no contact with the relative whatsoever. He says for most of that 27%, it was not a case that they had simply drifted apart. It was a significant estrangement about which they felt upset. So causes of estrangement, he says, include choice of partner, the legacy of divorce, problematic in-laws, uh, value differences and unmet expectations, as well as conflicts over money and inheritance. Now, it might have started with some issues in childhood, he says, and then there's a divorce, or in adulthood, there are value differences or issues around partner choices which start to cascade where difficult communication becomes hostile until someone says, I'm done. It's easier if we just don't have contact anymore. See, estrangement involves not just the loss of someone, but active rejection which is one of the most stressful things a person can go through in their life. Uh, he says it's this triple whammy that makes it so hard to get over. Then the pain is compounded by the fact that people tend to ruminate on the rift. We never stop thinking about it. Well, this was certainly the case with Jacob's family. Jealousy had led the older brothers the ones who just said we are honest men, as you all giggled, uh, to sell Joseph to the Ishmaelite traders. This lands Joseph in Egypt, where he experiences being a slave, imprisonment, as well as some blessings in those things, but ultimately just estrangement and, uh, from his family. Until last week, however, uh, where through God's intervention, he was able to uh, interpret Pharaoh's dreams, and he's now been placed in charge of the entire uh, Egyptian powerhouse of a nation. He's the most powerful person in Egypt apart from Pharaoh himself. And in chapter 41, verse 44, Pharaoh says, uh, Pharaoh says to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift a hand or foot in all of Egypt. That's the extent of his power. But all this has come at a personal cost. Estrangement and rejection of Joseph by his own family. See, his father believes him dead because of the lies uh, of Joseph's brothers. An old man now stricken with years of grief. Joseph was alone. No one was looking for him. He was a foreigner in a foreign land, estranged from his family. And there is no doubt Joseph has been ruminating on these things for years. He is now 30 years old, 
13 years has passed after his brothers sold him. How could your own flesh and blood inflict such suffering upon you? The trauma, the grief, the loneliness were all part of Joseph's experience. Yet by the time we come to our section this morning, Joseph has started to move on. See, he is now married and two sons have been born to him. And if you remember back to the early parts of this series, we looked at names and names and names. And names were, had a great uh, reflection of what was happening, particularly in the parent's life. And the first son that is born to him, he calls Manasseh. And he says in chapter 41, verse 51, it is because God had made, has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. He's moved on. The second son he named Ephraim and said, it is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. See, Joseph has processed, he's forgotten. He's gone, okay, I can move on now. His father Jacob would have also have come to learn to live with his grief. I'm sure he's never, you never get over that grief. But 13 years after concluding Joseph is dead, he would have found ways to carry on, particularly with a focus on Joseph's younger brother, Benjamin. Well, Jacob has given up hope of reunion. Joseph has given up hope of reunion. Yet God is the God and, uh, of hope. And he is the God who works in the impossible. And his will will be worked out regardless of the people that are involved. See, just as Joseph had prophesied through the interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams, we've now had seven years of abundance in Egypt. That's a good time. J Joseph's highly regarded, so, so abundant that they stored so much grain they no longer kept records because it was beyond measure. But it came to an end and the seven years of famine began. And chapter 41 ends with us being told this, and all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. And that famine included Canaan. So Jacob sends 10 of his sons to Egypt to buy grain. He refuses to send Benjamin because Benjamin, Joseph's uh, brother to his mother Rachel, the only two sons to Rachel, the, the only wife of the four that, uh, that Jacob actually loved. Leah was given to him deceptively. Uh, the other two were slave women that the, 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 the wives had given to him. Rachel was the one he loved. And Benjamin, uh, when he was born, Rachel died. So there was no way he was given him up. And so he sends the other ten. And in God's providence... What do you know? The brothers arrive at the main supply in Egypt. They would have had supplies all around Egypt. They, maybe the foreigners had to come to the main supply. We don't know. And who's there? Joseph. And we're told this in verse 6. They bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Joseph's dream, back in chapter 37, two dreams... The dreams in which led his brothers to want to kill him 
and which led his father to indignantly ask, will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? Well, here we are with his brothers bowing down in fulfilment of the first dream. So the irony that you can't miss here is that the very actions that his brothers took to kill him so those dreams weren't fulfilled are the very actions which led to the dreams being fulfilled. See, we think we're in control. We think we're making all these decisions to thwart whatever's going on around us, to take control of our life. But in the end, God is using each and every one of our decisions to fulfill his purposes. It's like the brothers have been bushwalking and they've gone off track thinking, yep, we'll, we, we want to head into this direction. We don't have a compass, but we know where we're going. And they've just headed off course to take a shortcut and they are confidently thinking they are heading in the right direction. Getting rid of Joseph so they won't bow down to him. But ironically, in fact, they are heading to the very destination that they didn't want to go. And they arrive there and have just fulfilled the very prophetic dream they took action to avoid. Don't miss that irony. Because when you think you're in control of your life, the Lord will intervene. and He'll make it very clear that his purposes will be worked out. We take matters into our own hands, but it is God's will that prevails. Man makes his steps, but the Lord will prevail. So after all these years, having moved on from the whole episode with his whole family uh, now, with power, he's got his own family now, power, uh, power and prestige, Joseph has, suddenly Joseph is unexpectedly confronted with the sight of his brothers. Yes, flesh and blood, but those who inflicted the great trauma of the last 13 years on his life rejected him, wanted to kill him, sold him into slavery, abandoned him, left him to die, thinking he was dead. What would Joseph do in response? Have you done something in response to that kind of confrontation? Well, back in 2016, Morgan Alexander Isles English had a chance encounter with his estranged father on a Brisbane street. He was 27 years old. But during his childhood, his father used to lock him in a room while his father did drugs. He was subject to violence and abuse. He had an awful childhood. He had had contact four years before this, but not since. Well, suddenly and unexpectedly, his father was on the same street. He was there. What would he do? unfortunately Morgan's response was to run over there and punch his father as hard as he could his father died from that punch and now his life is behind bars see before Joseph are the brothers who 13 years before had inflicted great trauma and wanted to kill him and now Joseph is the most powerful man in the land They're the foreigners coming into his land. He can do whatever he wants to them. 
He can command anyone to do anything he wants to them. So how will he respond? Well, we're just told he spoke harshly to them. No doubt there are strong emotions running through him. I think he would have been battling this rage, but at the same time this this compassion because they are his flesh and blood. We then have this curious dialogue of Joseph accusing his brothers of being spies. And if you have a look at chapter 42, uh, verse 13 there. But they replied, your servants were 12 brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father and one is no more. The irony, they're saying this to the one who is no more. They are completely oblivious. Perhaps Joseph's speaking harshly and accusing them of being spies as payback, watching them retreat, cower. I'm sure there would have been something really nice about this watching them cower under his authority. Perhaps he was trying to figure out what kind of men they were after 13 years. Had they changed? Well, they think they're honest men. Had they changed? But he also would have realised the youngest wasn't there. His own flesh and blood, the only brother he had to his mother. He wasn't there. Had they done something to him out of jealousy as they had to Joseph. Well, I think all these things are true to an extent. But the key here is back in verse 9. And we're told, Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. See, Joseph realises that this moment is bigger than this interaction with his brothers. He remembers the dreams from 13 years ago. It all comes pouring back into him. He's moved on. He's forgotten his homeland. He's forgotten his family. And suddenly, through God's divine intersection, it is all flooding back. And through God's providence and through God's grace, he has this realisation that there were these dreams that his brothers would bow down to him. But he had a second dream that his father would also bow down to him. And I think Joseph, in his wisdom, is seeking a way in which to bring his father to Egypt. I think it's very very wise in what he's doing. He's saying, you are spies, But his focus here is on the younger brother. He wants to prove whether they can bring Benjamin to him. He knows they're not honest men. And so will they bring Benjamin to him? So it's all tied in together. He knows this is God's bigger picture at work, but he has this deep love of needing to know about his younger brother and no doubt his father as well. Well, Jacob's already told them if Benjamin, uh, Jacob, their father, has already told them if Benjamin goes and something happens to him, 
Well, he's as good as dead. He won't survive. But here, Jacob, uh, here, Joseph is saying, I'm going to keep one of you in prison while I send the rest back to go and get Benjamin. See, Joseph has wedged them between a rock and a hard place. So much so that the brothers conclude this is punishment for what they have done to Joseph. Verse 21 to 23, they said to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life. Now, I can't remember hearing that in the original, uh, in the original account. Joseph had been in this traumatic position of pleading for his life. Surely, we saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now, we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realise that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. This situation is remarkable. They're being humbled. They're they're actually, for the first time, I think, recognising that they will be brought to account. You can't just kill your brother or send him off to be killed without an account. Well, the trauma resurfaces for Joseph, and we are told that he turns away from them and begins to weep. We can't just read this in, in theological terms. This is humanity in its fullest sense. This is estrangement and pain. This is trauma. This is all those things that we experience in our life. The raw pain of what they had done to him returns. Just when he thought it was all over, just when he thought he was moving on, God brings his family back into his life. But Joseph also realises that God, through his suffering, is fulfilling his plans. It is no surprise that he keeps Simeon in prison. He was one of the chief leaders who wanted to kill him. And so Joseph, but Joseph's grace and love for his father and his family as he sends the other nine brothers back, he fills their sacks with grain and then he puts all their silver back in their sacks. I think he did that in order to give them back. He didn't want to take his father's uh, money. But now they fear another wedge they fear of being accused of stealing their silver back. See, they're still unaware that the man in Egypt was Joseph. And the brothers are so overwhelmed with their predicament. We are told this uh, in verse 28. Their hearts sank and they turned to each other trembling and said, what is this that God has done to us? They are being brought to account. And when you encounter the fullness of God's sovereignty, the fullness of God being in control, that there is nothing in your life that won't be brought to account, it should lead you to trembling before him. Well, they're convinced that the time has come to pay the price. 
when they arrive back to Jacob, they tell him the story and Jacob is heartbroken. He says this in verses 36 to 38. You have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more and now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. And Reuben said to his father, you may put both of my sons to death if I do not bring, back, bring him back to you. Entrust him to my care and I will bring him back. But Jacob said, my son will not go down, to the, down there with you. His brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey you are taking, you will bring my grey head down to the grave in sorrow. What a mess. Simeon is Reuben's younger brother. They were the first two born to Leah. So they're like this. Simeon's now in prison and Reuben's willing to give up his own two children to take Benjamin and release his brother back. Reuben's heart is with Simeon, but Jacob's heart is with Benjamin, more so than Simeon. Benjamin is a child born to his loved wife, wife Rachel. We've already seen that Joseph was a more loved son, which got us all into this predicament. And now Benjamin is obviously a more loved son simply because their mother was the one that Jacob loved. And so we have Simeon in jail in Egypt. Joseph is weeping because possible post-traumatic stress disorder. Jacob is grieving the loss of another son and Reuben grieving the loss of his brother. And everyone is feeling that this is an impossible situation, that their lives are ruined. But in the mess and the, and, and the impossibility, God is working out his purposes. You see, God works in the impossible. And he works in the impossible because it brings him the greatest glory. And there's no greater impossibility than his own son coming to the earth. He is condemned to die. He is nailed to a crucifix. Dead and buried. Dispatched, forgotten dealt with well that's impossible he's dead well three days later the impossible became possible when he was raised from the dead you see god works in the impossible there is no one who bring, could bring glory to him greater than himself because we try all we can but we end up on the off the path and into whatever we want to be doing so if you think you can boast about anything you've done for the kingdom, take a step back. It's all come from God. But the thing is, we all live in the impossible. Many of us feel like we are in impossible situations. It might be estrangement from family. It might be... Uh, it might be illness, it might be disease, it might be all sorts of things. You might be in a work situation which seems impossible. Well, I tell you what, the last few months, I think 
I've had more conversations which has brought out that I think as a church, we're starting to feel that we might be in impossible situations. And we need to be open about this. You don't have to look very far around you to question, well, where are we going as a church? People ask me that now. I think four years I've been here, over four years I've been here. We went through a bad season about, you know, which ended about a year before I came. I came, six months later, we go through two years of pandemic. We have struggled to rebuild the church. Let's be honest about that. Because if we're not honest about that, we can't accept that maybe we can't do a great deal about it. But God is the God of the impossible. The elders and I are talking about a budget which actually looks quite impossible for next year. Let's be honest about that. We've got all these buildings and all these assets which are harder and more expensive to maintain. It feels impossible. But you see, God is the God who works in the impossible because it brings him the greatest glory. You know, I've, won, I've lost a lot of sleepless nights in the last few months. I, I, I have to say, I've questioned everything. Just putting it out there. But you know what? After every conversation, after every sleepless night, I always come back to believing, and I do believe this, that God is setting a foundation. I do believe he's going to rebuild our church. And I mean that. And I want you to believe that the God that we worship is the same God that has worked out this mess right here. But it's never a clean journey. He's going to bring them to Egypt. Then they're going to end up in slavery in Egypt. And then he's going to release them from Egypt. And then they're going to reject him. And then he's going to send them into the wilderness for 40 years. And then he's going to send them into the promised land and they're going to reject him. And so then he's going to exile them to Babylon. And then he's going to bring them back. And then they're going to reject him. And the prophets will be going, what are you doing? Well, praise be to God that he has not given up when things are impossible. See, every one of us live in the impossible. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot live in a place where we think that, oh, yeah, we are the ones who can work our way into uh, rightness with God. Every single one of us is impossible. But praise be to God that he is the God of the impossible and he sent his one and only son who was perfect in every way to die on the cross when everything seemed impossible, to conquer sin, to conquer death, to reunite you and me into his family. This is a family reunion. They're standing before Joseph. God has created this family reunion when it was impossible and God creates the family reunion for all those who put their trust in the Lord Jesus and are adopted into his family as children of God. You see, we are all living the impossible. 
So I want to encourage you as we head into next year, let's be honest about what it is. But let's not give up faith. I think we've had a good four years, even though outwardly we might not see that. I think inwardly, I think we are healthier than what I believe, and I haven't been here the whole time, than maybe the church has been for a very long time. I know there's great faithful people in this church who have and continue to serve abundantly. There are people who have been praying and praying for our church. And I know many of you have had visions and dreams over the last three or four years and you've come to me and gone, look, this is out of character for me, but I need to talk to you about this. And they have had dreams where they see our church flourishing and all this wonderful stuff going on. Well, I tell you what, just because it might not be in our timing, it doesn't mean it's not true. Next year, I think we are going to move into a new space, as in direction, as in we we need to just forge ahead in faith. It may look impossible, but it's not. Because it's not about me, it's not about you, it's the Lord's work. We remain connected to him. But it all starts with prayer. We must pray. Five o'clock Monday, starting tomorrow, I'm going to be downstairs and I would like to see as many people as possible. We might be there for half an hour, but if there's lots of people, we might be there for longer. If you need to leave early, I don't care. But five o'clock on Mondays, I'm going to be downstairs where the old office was in that other room, without not the kitchenette, the other one. I want you to come, five o'clock Mondays. And we're just going to pray for the future of our church. And if that's going well, I might even find some more times. I want to go into next year on a foundation of prayer. I know a lot of you are praying and I'm thankful for that and I know a lot of life groups are praying and I'm thankful for that. That's where it starts. But this morning, I just want you to remember this. God is the God of the impossible. I want you to take heart in that. Wherever your life is, wherever you see the church at, I believe the Lord is guiding us. I believe he is the one at the head of this church. It is his church And I'm looking forward to the journey, even if it might feel like I'm off track. Well, let's pray. Father God, we just uh, commit our church into your hands, Lord. We know it's your church. And Father, there have been decades of faithfulness in this church. And there's been journey into exile. There's been journeys into the promised land. There's been journeys all in all terrain, Lord. And Father, we come into the end of this year thinking, is this impossible? Well, Father, you are the God of the impossible. Lord, we thank you that as we watch you reunite Joseph with his family and as that creates the nation of Israel, which eventually leads to the birth of the Messiah, the Son of God. Father, we give you great thanks knowing that You are the one with all power, all sovereignty. And Lord, we just ask now that you guide us. You protect us. You be our shepherd. You be our warrior. And you be the one who leads our church into a land of plenty. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.